Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. And there we have it, the music. It is two minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You're on 3RRR, you're on Radio Marinara, and I'm Anthony Boxshaw. I'm Dr Beach. And I'm Ron Burton. And we are seamless today, people. (laughs) We are a team. You wouldn't know we're in three completely different locations. We've given it away, haven't we, Bron? We have indeed. (laughs) Oh, I have an echo at my end, though. That's not me, 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 not me, not me. (laughs) How are you both? Are you well, Dr. Beach? I'm very well, Anth. And you? I am. I am. I feel um, relieved and released a little. I feel a little bit buoyed. I'm buoyed. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, me too. Buoyant, perhaps. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to a couple of days of just that weather that they promise at this time of the year, those people, but never deliver. (laughs) I think they might on Cup Day. Yeah, I know. How about you, Bron? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Um... Further buoyed by the news that we have another double donut day today. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's great news. Yeah. Good you one he- to wake up to. You, you know, he- I'm you heard it on Radio Marinara for <laughs> <laughs> We've trumped those doctors with the big announcements. <laughs> hey, um, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful show by Tim. I just, there was some spoken word in there that was sensational about quarter past, half past eight. I just, how does he do it? How does that man succeed? Yeah. He, what, what amazed me, Anth, was mm. that he played a song called Hillman Hunter. Guess what my first automobile was? Uh, Morris Minor? Uh, no, it was a Hillman Hunter. <laughs> oh. It was a 1972 Hillman oh. Hunter, and affectionately known as Harry, and I got many, many, many good miles out of that car, yeah. many good memories, and that just, again, buoyed my heart. Uh, it's a buoying, buoying of the heart day. Yeah, so thank I you, I pictured Tim. you as more of an Aston Martin kind of man, <laughs> Dr. Beach. <laughs> You're just yanking my chain. That's the Bungra version. Of if, if, only, if only I was Sean Connery. <laughs> well, actually, today it sounds like that's not a good idea. Well, he got to 90. Good point. Yes, he did. He did. Hey, um, we've got a very big show. We're going we're gonna to talk. Uh, we're going to catch up. Unfortunately, uh, sorry, hang on. We're going to catch up about what's happened post uh uh, fire recovery in Malakuta, and unfortunately Jan Gilbert won't be able to join us this morning. We have had a chat this morning, and I'll fill you in on. She's given me a great report on on where things are at, um, we'll, and we'll talk about that. And Dr. Beach, you've I've, been well, living on a beach. Life's on a be- life's a beach. Well, life definitely is a beach. Um, today, I'd like to go through well, look at a bit of an in memoriam for a couple of people, you know, huge marine biologists, people who have just been heroes in the scene. Who have passed on to a, I don't know, perhaps a better world, who knows, um, shuffled off that mortal coil in the last couple of months. One is Joe O'Connell, Joseph O'Connell, the who great Joe, Joe, O'Connell. Joe, Joe Connell, Connell, Joe Connell. I say? Yeah, Joe Connell. Um, perhaps the first experimental ecologist. Mm-hmm. Um, he lived to, yeah, lived up to, lived till his 90s, did a lot of his work in um, Scotland and the United States, Santa Barbara. Uh, an American ecologist and... And Australia, in Queensland and Victoria. Heap, heaps of work Huge. here as well. So we will talk about him later on. And I also... Um, and Tim Eel. Yeah, we're going to talk about Tim. Bron's going to talk about Tim. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And then, I, then I'm going to talk about a, um, a paper which appeared in PLOS Biology not so long ago called 
It's thinking about preserving corals around the world, but preserving them in aquaria. Wow, now I heard about this. Oh, I can't wait to just talk about that. Yes. Yeah, driven by a lot of people in Monaco, but also our Irva in um, University of Queensland, over Hilgelberg. Yep. Uh, okay. very, very, very interesting article. Yes. Pick through that a bit. Um, and uh, later after that, this is really genuinely just an excuse for me to find out more about them and play Mel Webb's track. We're going to f- talk about water bears in Antarctica. Oh, I'm so excited. So Associate Professor Susie Reichman from Kappam at the University of Melbourne joins us and they do research on water bears, actually with water bears in Antarctica. Bron, I am so excited. (laughs) (laughs) I am too. They're pretty crazy critters, these water bears, tardigrades. I know. So, um, yeah, very excited to um, hear more about them. Although there is a bit of controversy. They call them, wait for it, the cutest name, moss piglets. (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness We're gonna, There's going to be a debate Mel may have to rewrite the song May have to have a water bear and a moss piglet version Anyway, we'll talk to Susie towards the end of the show Hey, but Bron, you've got a um, bit of weather I do indeed uh, So forecast for today We're heading for a top of 18 degrees Becoming sunny yeah, It's a bit overcast where I am in uh, the southeast at the moment uh, Mostly cloudy morning Becoming sunny during the afternoon Light winds becoming southerly 15 to 20 kilometres an hour in the early afternoon then becoming light in the evening. And uh, tomorrow, oh, 25. No, I don't sunny. believe you. Don't oh. believe you. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't already arranged to take tomorrow off, then maybe you should, if you can. Um, areas of morning fog or low cloud, then sunny light winds and afternoon bayside sea breezes. Then uh, oh, That sounds 29. absolutely perfect, though, doesn't it? Like it's like well, everything. It's the low breeze. Oh, anyway, sorry. Until we get to Cup Day, which ups the ante even further, 29 and sunny. <sighs> Uh, sunny, light winds becoming northerly, 20 to 30 kilometres now during the morning. And then we get brought back to reality on Wednesday where oh. it's raining, uh, 24 showers developing, Thursday can we, possible shower at 15. Can we stop there? Do we have to go any further? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't put your woolies away just yet. 15 on Thursday uh, and a possible shower. Friday 17 and Saturday 16. That's the forecast at this point. But, <laughs> yes, the next three days are looking like being absolutely beautiful. And, you know, the thing that I love about that is we start to become Melbourne again, you know, and we, you know, we're up there paying obnoxious amounts for coffee and lining up for dimmies and swearing at punt road traffic and, you know, being wearing blacker black than we can. The weather is also being Melbourne for us. Oh, it's yeah. doing and its Melbourne see- most. Day one out of lockdown, the truck that got stuck under the South Melbourne Bridge. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, we're back to normal. There's a truck under the Montague. (laughs) Yeah, Montague Street Bridge. I had to, um, I had to uh, stand back and do a slow clap with that one. It just. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's Um, funny, isn't it? These are Melbourne milestones. (laughs) Bang over the Uh, top of coffee. I was Sorry, tide tides. times. Yeah. No, you're right. Tide times. We had a, a low tide at 7.20 this morning. This is a Port Phillip Heads heading for a high tide at 1 o'clock this afternoon and then uh, another low tide at 7.26. Awesome. Awesome. Now, I um, I think it's actually today's the last day of it, but I will um, post a link on our, our Facebook. The federal... I think it would be the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment, so DOA, um, uh, at the moment through a process of shaping up state of the environment for Australia for 2021. And uh, there is actually a, this is a very interesting idea. There's a survey out at the moment. So if you, if you um, um, Google Australia state of environment, 
2021. You'll probably get the link to it anyway before I get to Facebook, um, where it is asking all of us Australians what we think the scope should be of the state of environment. So they can kind of get a perception of what people's expectations are, which I think is an incredibly interesting approach to take. So you can get a kind of a view of what people would like to know the state of and then go and find out. It's very open and embracing. It is, isn't it? Very and very good. <laughs> I, think it's a very good I think it's a great approach. I, I, yeah. Put it on your door. I know. So there you go. So anyway, the um, and it may be being run by the science um, committee that's involved in it. There's a there's a, a bunch of very good scientists um, who are involved in framing it up, including Prof Emma Johnson, um, old Marinara friend from the University of UNSW, uh, Dean of Science up there. So there's a there are some very good thinkers in there who are helping shape it. So I'd imagine that you know the the kind of but that sense of you know helping people connect to what the science is telling them by actually asking people what science you'd like to know. It's very important. Yeah, really impressive. Anyway, Bron, you said you got a little bit of news as well. Oh, I do. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I've caught her off guard. I can see that she's now going, oh, No, you're right. I'll, I'll, I'll mention this one quickly. I mentioned last week I would do a film review of this and I actually haven't got around to watching the film. I just want to give it a plug because it's now available um, from the 31st of October, which was only a couple of days ago, through till the 8th of November, which is next weekend. Uh, so I could watch it between now and then. Um, but by the time we come back to air next week, it'll only be available for another day or two. So this film is called Poisson Sex. It's a it's translated into fish love. So it's a French film oh. and available through through the Environmental Film Festival Australia website. So like so many film festivals that are happening this year, it's all being done online, but it doesn't mean you have to miss out on all of this uh, great programming that's happened. Uh, and so there, um, it premiered on the 29th of October, which was a few days ago with a QA, and a uh, but you can continue to watch it all week. Okay. So this is, um, this is a bit of a futuristic film, uh, not too distant future. Bell Rose, uh, we're a physicist and disillusioned bachelor, Daniel Stutt is the near extinction of Earth's ocean life, which has left our seas overrun by jellyfish. So in the midst of an ecological disaster, his own existential crisis arises as he realises statistically he has own a one in 6.2 something chance of meeting, uh, 6.2 thousand, sorry, chance of meeting a woman, woman likely to share in his dream of having a family. So it's a quirky sci-fi hmm. Rom-com from Rom-com from France. Uh, looks really interesting. I'm going to watch it during the week. Um, so apologies if you are holding out for my film review. I'm guessing probably not many people were, but uh, yeah, I'll uh, I'll watch it during the week and um, and let's share stories next week and and see what we all think of it. And the name again? Uh, Poisson sexe. Uh-huh. That's my that's my best. I thought it was very good. I'm, I'm impressed. And it means fish, fish sex, love. fish love, fish love. Oh. I thought you were saying poisson sex. I did. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, right. Yeah, that's yeah. Effa's yeah. translation. Yeah. So, oh, okay. anyway. <laughs> Fish love. Fish love. <laughs> Okay, cool. And the other one that I wanted to quickly um, know, I mean, we, we last month you and I, um, Bron and, and Fom, did that quick review and I hadn't seen it of the octopus, my octopus teacher, which by the way, oh, I just yeah. I blew me away. I loved it. If you haven't seen it, go and see it. But I know because we're all not running out yet, are we? I don't know about you guys, but I haven't, I'm not, you know, we're, we're still very tentative about heading out, even though we can, it's nice to know we can, we're still not rushing out to a pub every day. But the, um, or there's not, you know, there's no live shows yet. So, but the, um, um, if you have not seen the Attenborough doco, his witness statement, my life, have you seen it? 
Both of you? It's on Netflix. I have not. It is Not remarkable. yet, but I saw it. <laughs> saw it reviewed on Gogglebox. Oh, okay. Big, I'm a big fan of Gogglebox. I love it. But um, yeah, it looks amazing and scary. It and is, and it's it's yeah. both, it, and it's that, and they use the device, you know, him himself as a device, but also the journey of just terror, shock, horror, fear. You know, the first, and then they bring you out of it. And it is, it's, it's an emotional roller coaster and it's shocking and it should be shocking, but it's also uplifting and gives you a sense that you, we actually can do something. We really can. And um, it is, it's remarkable in his reflection, even on his understanding of the planet and the journey that he's gone on since the 1950s is quite remarkable. Just, just you know, him kind of telling the story about he what he hadn't realised, what he now knows. You know, mm. it's just one of those things where you you know you listen to an elder. You know, oh, it's it is a stunning, um, stunning thing. And and you know, do, you'll have to debrief if you've got young kids. You'll have to debrief afterwards because you, you do walk away feeling like, oh crikey, we're just giving them pretty tough stuff, haven't we? You know, I would definitely have a look at it. It's sensational. And and, and the yet, name of it again, Ash. You can't, I, I, you know, to be honest, I can't remember. It, but basically, it's a day and okay, okay. Um, my life, I think, our life on the planet or something like that. I think it's called um, free to wear. I assume is it? Well, it's on Netflix. Oh, it's on Netflix, right? Yeah, okay. sorry, I, yeah, I saw it on Netflix, but it's probably on a bunch of stuff. Hey, anyway, hey, um, we did um, advertise that we were going to have a chat with Jan Gilbert, who is a marine ecologist, who coastal marine ecologist, who's been has been earlier in the year post the big fires down in, in um, the east of the state in Melacuda had been giving us some reports about how things were going and uh, whether things were bouncing back. I had, a, had a good chat to Jan this morning, and she decided not to come on air. Things are, um, you know, it's it is it has been a tough year down there, and um, you know, um, she gave me a couple of you know updates, and we'll we'll connect back in again next year. Um, and I think that one of the reasons we started talking about this is because we're interested in the resilience of communities. We're interested in the resilience of both coastal human communities as well as ecological communities and and jam was talking to us about both of those and if i start with the human community the, the my, my sense um from from our conversation is the human community is doing it tough like re- really tough and 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 a little stat i think that that stood out for me was of the and i can't remember and i apologize somewhere between 100 to 120 homes that were destroyed there are three fully rebuilt so this is just in Malacuta, this is in Malacuta alone. Yeah. And wow. so you think about what that means in terms of like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, you've got people who still don't have a permanent place to live. Yeah. And so mm. therefore that whole building community, I think that I got the sense also from, from her and others as well that the process of community rebuilding has been, the community has been taking charge of that and is going well. Um, and, but, but it's just tough. You know, and they're a tough bunch down there, as we all know too. So, they're they're doing they're doing it as a we have to. Um, in terms of ecological communities, it's there's, there's, it's kind of a it's a really interesting story. There's I, we'll talk about some data next year when we we connect. But in terms, it's almost like a story of two opposites because of the um obviously the rest of the year that all the rest of us have had with covid and that local community as well no one's been going there and so the 
the, the waterways and the coastal environment is flourishing in the sense that there's no boats, you know, going through. So the ribbon grasses have come back in places where they hadn't. And, you know, there are, you know, sea grasses and all kinds of things. And so there's, there's a real sense of, gosh, it's looking on the surface like to be quite, you know, I suppose in a way we've taken a perturbation out even though the fire was a big perturbation, we've taken a perturbation out, which is the follow-up disturbance that happens. Um, and so things are looking pretty healthy, which well, that, is really interesting. That's, that's very good news. Now, that, that's on the surface. On the surface. <laughs> yes. um, the, then when you start to look at, for example, the, the, sh- the, the shearwaters out, um, that there's less, there was less fledges out of the shearwater colonies than there's ever you know, than there's been for a number of years. Um, and then, of course, as we talked about when we caught up with Jan in, in um, when was the last time? April. Um, a lot of the biochar, you know, all the, you know, the bits of the ash and the bits of, you know, trees that have burnt, etc. They all washed in, of course, as we know, knew they would. They washed into the creeks and rivers and estuaries and then have been sitting there as a layer, you know. So there's a layer of kind of, you know, almost sediment that's happened. And so that stuff is great because at one level it's got lots of nutrients in it yep. and partly that's how things have bounced back. But then when you disturb it, for example, with an estuary opening... Bam, you know, like it's very deoxygenated, and um, that lack of oxygen in that bottom layer there means that, for example, the Becker River's been opened three times, probably naturally, um, and certainly once the first time um, was massive fish death right up the creek, right up the river, way above where people imagined the estuary stopped. Um, right. and, and that was just because so much of that kind of cleaner fresh water disappeared off the top and the really Turb, la- turbulent, turbid, yep, yeah. turbid lack of oxygen, yeah. um, you know, the stuff that all the things washed in from the fires sitting on the bottom kicked up, no oxygen in it, everything died. It's interesting, I think we, of, we often think of like charcoal habit providing all that nutrient, mm. as you said, but it does also have that very disturbing activity, particularly in the water, and that's when you make it turbidity, it interferes with the... Yeah. And normal life processes of so many organisms. So. And of course, in this context, it's a natural process. <laughs> yeah. um, however, you know, we go back to how did it start that way, and and, and you know, do do we need to be having this scale of fire, et cetera? And of course, we know the answer is no. Of course, we don't. Um, we need to be changing our practices. That therefore, we you know, kind of, which is a long term emissions reduction goal. Um, but it, yeah, so so it's a mixed story, I guess. It's a it's a mixed story for community, and it's a mixed story for people community, and it's a mixed story for the ecological community. Um, I, I guess that's probably probably the best way to describe the update. Um, I'm really thankful for for Jan for being able to have a chat off air with me this morning about that. But that number of houses that have been oh. rebuilt, and I do know, I, I had heard a while ago that that. Malakuta community, as you said, Anth, is very much taking it into their own mm. hands, the rebuilding. I mean, they, they, they couldn't wait. They're at the, their extremity of the state. Yeah, yeah. Many and people look after, so they had, they had people with experience there and infrastructure and, and, and rebuilding from this yeah. kind of event, and that is really... To be clear, there are more in the process of being built. Yeah. Um, you know, like, like, you know, there's many more in, the, in being built. Um, and also the reflection is that, you know, COVID hasn't helped because... You can't, you know, you, Melbourne people, you know, chippies and things couldn't travel down. So, you know, you can't, you know, so there's there's that 
challenge heaped on top of it. But so anyway, we'll, we'll have a chat early, probably early next year. Jan's actually heading out um, probably in December out to Gabo and have a look at the shearwater colonies and a few other things. And there is there is data being collected. There are people um, from different agencies collecting things as well. So mixed, mixed update there, Bron, from, from Mallacoota. Yeah, and I'm hearing similar stories in the New South Wales South Coast as well. There was a really interesting piece that was done, uh, might have been 7.30 report, maybe Australian story some time ago about, you know, how months and months on after um, after the fires that there are still similar stories to what you've just said, Anth. There are still people who don't have anywhere to live, um, uh, people who are living in caravans, uh, people who've gone through, particularly in Cabago, which, you know, received mm. a, a lot of media attention at the time, uh, just living in caravans and, and you know, portables and uh, very temporary accommodation that still hadn't been resolved. So it worries me a lot too that the spotlight's really been taken off this for, for obvious reasons mm. um, and, and COVID obviously has dominated world news and, you know, we're heading into another summer and um, at, at some point uh, we'd like to think that the, the mainstream spotlight will turn back onto this and look at the aftermath and, of course, an upcoming fire season again. Yeah, absolutely. Um now I, I, I kind of feel like you know it's a it's um not the most uplifting show because we've got two in memoriam segments as well. But you know like, I think it's really important to recognise extraordinary lives when when we when they leave us. And Pron, um, you want to talk about uh, Tim Ely, who is you know a wonderful, wonderful Tim Ely. I'll kickstart with Tim Ely. Yeah, if that's okay. So mm. Tim was actually a. Um, Oh, he was an amazing man. He was actually on our program on Radio Marinara twice, uh, once in 2009 when we had an extended phone conversation about him and his life. And I'm going to replay that chat next Sunday. Sensational. In its entirety. So we kind of get to see the full Tim. Um, but I don't know if you remember Dr Beach. He came into RRR in 2014 with Perrin Cook and we had a program celebrating the wonders of Western Port. Do you remember that? I do indeed, even though it was a long time ago. And I do test my memory going back six <laughs> years. But I, I think I could drag that out of the archives. Do you know, well, I, actually, I have as a you photo talk of about... the four of us. So I'll, I'll... Yeah. Sorry, Anne. I know, I was just thinking, as you talk about this, I reckon there's a, we're way back in the archives, a mini-disc um, uh, interview that Tim Allen did with Tim Ely in okay. the late 90s. So if I can find that as well, Bron, I'll, I'll try and find it and dig it up as well. Yeah, But yes, great. you're right. He, we've had so much to do with him over the years because of his role in explaining what's going on. Particularly That's in it. So I couldn't believe it, Dr. Beach. Um, he, so he, he died a couple of weeks ago at the age of 93. He was 87 when he came in. And I remember his daughter bringing him in. He's actually been living in South Australia for, um, I think, about 10 years now. But he was 87 when he came in to speak with us with Perrin Cook as well. So just to sum up Tim's life, he was uh, an explorer. He was a marine science pioneer. He was uh, he was really a giant of marine conservation, mm. particularly in Western Port and, and highlighting the importance of mangroves for Western and port ecology um, but his journeys took him to sub-antarctic and also to antarctica and that was sort of really contrasted against uh, some of his work his pioneering work in ecology in the pilbara so you can, couldn't imagine wow. two more 
um, different environments to be doing research in in Antarctica and then, you know, the vast ruggedness, well, both rugged environments, but in the Pilbara. So he was born in 1927. Uh, he dreamed of becoming a marine biologist, got into Sydney University to study zoology. And then during his honours year, he applied for a job with the Australian National Antarctic Research Expedition on Heard Island. So he was too young to become involved in the in the Second World War. Uh, and from that, but he always had the, had a sense that he, he wanted to do something big with his life, not that he wanted to go to war, but um, ended up going to Antarctica. And he later described that, I think in our interview, actually described it as one of the best things that could possibly have happened to him. And then after that, he uh, taught at Monash University uh, as a lecturer, and he actually set up Monash University's first applied ecology and environmental conservation program <laughs> that developed into a master's program and had a lot of resistance Um just the concept of applied ecology didn't go down well in in a sort of very new university that was sort of following academic trends at the time to keep things pure. Uh, but he pushed and ended up sort of setting up this uh, great program. And 1973 became the director of Graduate School of Environmental Science. And uh, and by 2000, the school had produced 800 graduates. So pretty amazing. That was wow. in a master's uh, at a master's level. Um, so his uh, life went on. He's had all sorts of. I was reading this last night in a, a tribute to him. Um, while he was at Monash, he had his pants ripped by a tusked bull seal. <laughs> he uh, at one point had to eat uh, penguin and storm petrel stew when they ran oh. out of food. At one point, oh. he was attacked by an albatross, which tried to drag him off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> this was mostly in the 1940s. This wasn't um, at Hastings, by the way. <laughs> at Hastings, no. yeah. <laughs> no, none of this was at Hastings. Um, and uh, he ended up doing some research on plankton colonies. I'm going back a little bit now, but that formed his thesis for a master's in oceanography back when he was uh, at Sydney University. So became a conservationist. Really, he, the work that he did with Western Port was after he retired and mm. he moved down to Phillip Island um, to, his, to do his, uh, you know, to spend his retiring years in Coronet Bay and uh, joined the Seagrass Partnership and did a lot of work with um, wonderful John Clark in throwing, you know, their collective energies and John Swan as well into uh, growing seagrass and drawing attention to the importance of mangroves in in their role uh, in having their own uh, environment, their own habitat, but also the role of uh, of preventing coastal erosion. Uh, he also uh, was known as Dr. Mangrove, which was, it actually came about from a show that he had a segment on in the 1970s on Channel 7's program, <laughs> This Week Has Seven Days. So he became known as Dr. Tim on that program and really passionate about educating kids about ecology and conservation. So... Um, a remarkable man. He, he, he sure was. And I think it's also worth pointing out that when he started that degree at Monash University that he, he very much... In, made sure that the word science was there with the study of the yes. environment that's how he, yeah. there was a lot of early resistance people thinking like well the environmental studies that's just like you know just basket weaving or whatever going out and you know <laughs> yeah. looking at a few birds that's not science and he really he really underscored that and and, and as you said bron it, it, it led to the many number of fantastic graduates that we see around the country today and other places that have come out of that um that what he set up, and he retired at you know, relatively early age of sixty, and then did an enormous amount of work. Huge, after that. had like a second yeah. career. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like he had a second career. And are you um, you're going to play this next week, Bron? Yes. Uh, awesome. Last thing I'll just say about Tim is yeah. that he's had um, three things named after him, so he's been immortalised by having, and this is presented in order: a uh, a glacier, oh. uh, a hill, 
and a tiny rodent which he um, described and named called the uh, Ningui Tim Elii. <laughs> sensational. Oh, that is sensational. So Valet Tim Ely. Um, you're on Radio Marinara. We're going Indeed, you are on 3 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. It is 22 minutes to the 10 o'clock, 22 minutes to the doctors. And doctor, speaking of doctors, Dr. Beach. Uh, Dr. Boxall. Um, I'd like to talk about another doctor, and this is a Professor Joe Connell. Joe Connell, we talked about Tim Ely before, who um, passed on. Another hero in marine biology, but in ecology in general, Joe Connell. Uh, left this world at the age of 96 just recently, a couple of, well, a few weeks ago. And there's been a couple of wonderful obituaries that you can read both in science and nature, which I'm drawing from here. But Joe Connell I first learned about when I was doing ecology in undergraduate. And it was Joe Connell who took ecology from a descriptive science where people would observe differences, say, in um, tree distribution as they go up a mountainside or even when we go down to the shore we can see distribution we can see different shells at different levels on the shore we can see different animals there we can see different seaweeds and we see bandings things like that people would describe those it was joe who decided to try and figure out in his very early days what was the reason for those different distributions Mm. was it a tolerance that they had different levels of tolerance that they had for for temperature for the amount of moisture that was around or was it something else that was involved and so he gave us the science of what we can now call and lots of people do is called experimental ecology and you know the most the interesting the most interesting part about that too is that um, he picked it up and made it enormous and he built on the work of two Australians in the 50s called Andrew Arthur and Birch and it was kind of you know almost I don't know whether he read it early on, but he always credited, interestingly, he always credited Australian ecologists as the ones that had the idea of doing the things that he then went on to do so well and really create experimental ecology. So you know you know, you know, know the life of Joe much better than I do, Anthony. You should probably be doing oh, no, this. No, I mean, no, you, you, you spent some time I mean, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he well, was, where he spent the most of his life. But not with Joe there. No, I'm, I mainly met him in Melbourne, probably with where you met him, Bron, as well. Where our old supervisor um, was one of his uh, intellectual Protégés. offsprings. Is that? Is yes. that does that I make think. him our in, our supervisory grandfather? <laughs> Your academic grandfather. Yes. So we're talking about Mick Keogh, who yes. was our, our um, both of our PhD supervisors. And yes, I think Mick did his um, postdoc yes. with Joe. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember that too, Anth, when he came to Melbourne and there was this rock star buzz <laughs> running <Yeah>. through. <laughs> Even <laughs> for me as a third year, it was like, you know, Joe Connell, you've got to read all these <gasps> papers, these fantastic papers oh, yeah. that came out in the 1960s. And they made such sense. That was the other thing about it. They were, you know, it was a deep science. But it was just kind of, you just went there and went, it was one of those things where you just kind of went, why hasn't anyone actually done this before? It's so bloody obvious. Let's, let's spend a second just talking about those yeah. very early papers, which were part of his PhD of, um, off the British Isles. where he Well, he initially did, did work for his master's around the University of California, Berkeley, um, looking at the ecology of rabbits, but yeah, could only get very small populations. So then as he wanted to go on and try and make more contributions in this field he then went back to darwin and darwin reminded him that you could look at huge populations of animals such as barnacles on the seashore charles darwin the person not darwin the place in Uh, no 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 as in charles (laughs) origin of species 1859 all of that (laughs) 
uh, where, where you had huge populations of, of, mm. of animals but that, that you could manipulate, which is what he did. Um, so it, he would remove, so you would have two different species of barnacles, for example, on the shore. Were they there at those different levels on the shore because of their different tolerances to the physical conditions, say temperature and the amount, the amount of moisture there? So what he did was he would, exp- he would remove some of them in plots and have control plots and then see how removing that one particular species of barnacle would then allow another species of barnacle, which yeah. would grow perhaps as well as the other one, to then emerge there. So this got at the very heart of these ideas of interspecific competition being important in determining the distribution of animals, not only on the seashore, but also as you go up a mountainside, for example. And as you mentioned earlier on, Ant, he then took this to coral reefs. He had a very oh, long term... Like rainforests. Rainforests. He, he was had, a he true had, ecologist he, in that sense where he was, he was so into understanding the connection of the system and the bits in the system that he could pick it up and he could do it in a rainforest, he could do it in a desert, he could do it in a coral reef, he could do it on a foreshore. It was just the... He wasn't the bound system. by one particular yeah. system as so many scientists are, Remarkable like one particular man. organism, one particular environment. No, he decided to take those really broad overarching concepts and... and and validate them in many different places. Yeah. So it, it, he had, a, like at Heron Island, there was a, I think it lasted for 30 years, yeah. if not more, and also um, in the Daintree. And Leamington National Park. There are still plots in these places that, that, that you're talking about, Dr Beach, where students of students of students go back and measure data points that Joe Connell first measured in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. You know, and, and, and our understanding of the resilience of these systems comes from, you know, his thoughtfulness of going and going, um, I think we should measure this and I think we should measure it rigorously and come back and look every year and look at these changes. I talked about interspecific competition um, and how he, he enlightened us on that. But also when you look at environments such as the coral reef or coral reefs in general, rainforests, which are very, very, very old and they have an enormous amount of diversity. And one might understand naively if you're thinking about that, if you have a very old environment that eventually it's going to move to something where it's going to be dominated by a particular species. But so, but still, you do not see that in these. And this has mm. been a puzzle, this, this increased, you know, amazing amount of diversity that we see in coral reefs, that we see in rainforests. Joe was to be able to, again, able to illuminate us on that by coming up with the idea of, of disturbance. If you have cyclones, looking at like you know, huge events such as a cyclone, which would then get rid of, say, for example, dominant coral species such as staghorns. And when you do that, when you remove that, then you now open up an environment for other species to come in and that leads to the diversity that is there in the long term. So too in rainforests, even if you have one tree falling in the forest, he would document individual plants that would be growing up in that space that was left by the the fallen the tree, yeah, yeah. but in, in the gap. But now And now there's access to new resources, so you get light. you know. And, and if you think about many of the major ecological concepts, as you're, you're talking about competition and disturbance and these things that are the cornerstones, really, Joe either himself wrote about them or his students and his colleagues that he worked very closely with. They, they, they created, essentially, as you point out, modern experimental ecology and then have taken it you know, further. And he was one of these wonderful scientists who did an enormous amount of, I, I, I call it community work in science, by yeah. doing, by writing really detailed reviews. So looking at synthesising all of the material which had been written before in the particular 
field such as ecology, sort of, you know, in specific competition, synthesizing it all, bringing it all together and putting it in a package for somebody to consume. And then especially important for young students, for example, to be able yeah. to read these things so that they can then go on and move into the world that they're that they're wanting to do you know the other just I, I know we want to jump into the coral arc um very, very quickly because we have to play music in a couple of minutes but the um the other thing that i think is so interesting is so he was 97 when he died joe so he had an incredibly good and he was active into his 90s um we, we've just spoken about a giant you know in terms of his intellect and in terms of his impact on on a on the field of, of, of science and ecology um he was the gentlest, nicest little. He was like a little Santa. He had little, <laughs> kind of like a little. You know, for you know, for the years that I met him, which is the eighties onwards, you know, little white beard. He was just like a little kind of mini, lovely old grandpa that you have a hug with. You know, and it, yeah. and, and and so enormously. Um, um, Inspiring, I think, yes. to many people. It's the word that comes through in, in both of these obituaries and other things I've written. By, by the way, and listeners, generous with his time. Yeah. By the he way, would, listeners, you can you can read these yourselves if you go Joe Connell or Joseph Connell and Nature or Science. So Valet Joe, hey? Yeah. Now, uh, just, just, What's just, going just on? briefly, this is this is in another journal which, which people can get access to. It's in PLOS Biology. Um, just Google World Con- World Coral Conservatory in PLOS Biology, and this will come up. Um, demise of corals around the world we've talked about it many times on this show uh why not have a zoo for corals why not have a um a place where we can preserve corals mm-hmm. this seems like a very simple thing to say but it's um it, it actually can be quite complex the paper that's here that i'm reading now is coming out of um monaco have you ever been to monaco anthony no I've, apparently there's an amazing aquarium there i've heard that yeah Albert, um, Prince Albert, I think it is at Monaco, is very yep. interested yep. in supporting all of that. Yeah, uh, they have a huge aquarium there with many quarrels in it now. Oh. And what we're, what the proposal is, and this is an article which has come from very many coral biologists around the world, including our own Irva Gulberg, who's um, up in Queensland, is a proposition to collect not just randomly, but lots of different... So we have roughly 16, 1,700 species of corals around the world at the moment, is to take specific ones which are very important and representing perhaps um, populations which are not anywhere else yeah. and preserving these in live oh, in wow. in aquaria there's only a few which have been put up so far so monaco's you know full on yeah, yeah, yeah we're going to do it a few others in europe um and there's no specifics there about other aquaria are going to do this but it, it's early days the meeting was only had um wow. i was about to say at half time in 2019 are halfway we, through 2019 in monaco are we really there yet I don't, I'm not sure. Oh, we are. wow. Well, it, it well, like well there, the flag, there, is a, there is a need for this. I mean, of oh, course totally. there is a need for it. We talk yeah, yeah. about this lots. Yeah. But what also this will do is this will you know, perhaps provide corals for, for research so people don't have to go into the field and grab those, and particularly for people in aquaria, like um, home aquaria, people that want corals and all those kinds of things. And with wow. all of these ones that are kept, they will be tagged. They will have a little barcode yeah, on right. them. We'll have the transcriptome. We'll do all the fancy genomics of it so we know where they come from and we can... Um, Track these and preserve them, and so a little bit like a seed bank, but a living. Well, yeah, yeah so it kind of is like a seed bank, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Wow. But these are, these are living. Um, but oh, ch- check that yeah. out for those readers who want more in uh, more Can, on that. World Coral Conservatory plus biology just appeared. Um, next free time, to download. next time you and I are on together, Doctor Beach, let's have a conversation about this. The whole notion of conserving species that way. 
We love water bears here at Radio Maranoa, and rarely do we get a chance to actually discuss them. Today is different. Associate Professor Susie Reichman is the new director of CAPM, the Centre for Anthropogenic Pollution Impact and Measurement at the University of Melbourne, and she spent some time in Antarctica last year working with and on water bears. Good morning, Susie, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Hi, yes, it's good to be here. It's, well, we're excited. Um, before we get into the water bears themselves, and, and really just let's focus on those, but at the general aim of the research you're leading down in Antarctic, what's it about? So in Antarctica at the moment, there aren't any um, guidelines for what levels of pollution are safe. And so the Australian Antarctic Division is leading uh, developing guidelines for water and for soil of what levels of pollution are safe and we're playing a part in doing um, developing the soil guidelines. So for, as in international guidelines, but they're being led by Australia? Yes, exactly, yeah. Wow, okay. And mm, so yeah, does it's pretty it, cool. Yeah. And does it involve both lab and field work, you know, the kind of stuff? What, like, what do you do? Yeah, so last um, summer, so this is in the 2018-2019 summer, we went down to Antarctica and um, so that was the team who were working on it, there's two PhD students and myself, and uh, went around and collected soil and moss um, from where we thought we might find uh, the little tardigrades, the water bears, we like to call them moss piglets. Oh, we'll come back to that controversy, but anyway, yeah. (laughs) And then... um, and we also did some um, isolating of them out because, you know, they're tiny. You've got to look at them under a microscope. How big is um, a water bear? Um, we're talking down at the sort of 0.1 millimetre sort of size. Like you okay. can see it just, it's like a speck of dust. So unless you've just looked at it under a microscope and seen it moving, you think literally that it's a speck of dust. Okay. Yeah. So you separate them out and then do you kind of separate expose them, them to... Um, you know, kind of different potential pollutants at different levels. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. So we did a little bit of that in Antarctica, but mostly we're doing that um, back here in the lab. Surely there's no pollution in Antarctica. Yeah, well, this is the thing. We like to think of it as a great big wilderness, but, of course, as soon as humans go down there, we take other things with us, including our pollution. And back sort of in the olden days, um, we just used to have like dig a big hole and dump things in it and then all sorts of metals and hydrocarbons and different things have leached out into the surrounding environment and down into the sea around so it's mostly around the bases that we've got problems and occasionally still even today they have a spill of um, something like maybe um, an oil line might break and then you get a spill of oil right and then you get pollution from that yeah or they're much much better today much better guidelines and things and so, really, the water bears, though, which is really what we, yeah. you know, that, so the, this, it is a bit controversial. You call them moss piglets, which I must admit oh, yeah. is kind of cute. Very cute. We consider them water bears, so we'll just kind of draw yeah. a line on that and go, it's okay, we can all love tardigrades. What, yeah. what, like, where do you find them? Where do they live? Uh, so, in Antarctica, there's two types. There's the types that are in the water, and then there's the types that are in the soil and the moss growing in the soil. Um, but they're even still in the water. They're living in water droplets. And so we call them this word um, limno-terrestrial, which means they're living in water in the terrestrial environment. Huh. 
So water bears basically always live in kind of very wet spaces. Very wet, yeah. They can't, um, once it dries out, they, they curl up into their little balls called tons and they dry out and wait until it gets wet again. They really don't like it being dry at all. And I've heard that, that they can live in that format. I don't know what the, the, the word you used, the, the, where they basically, it's almost like a, a mega hot dehydration or something. They can yeah. live in that for ages, apparently. Yes, in, in Antarctica they've um, found them surviving for quite long periods of time. This is more in Antarctica, more um, sort of dry and frozen. And then if you defrost them, they come back to life, you know, uh, sort of decades. Decades? Yeah. Oh, you know what? You know, after we've all gone, the whole place will be colonised by water bears, won't it? Yeah, yeah, probably, as long as there's still water around. <laughs> hey, now, the, the most important question about water bears, and I know everyone want to know the answer to, and I know the research is incredibly important, and I think the fact that Australia is leading the setting of international standards is remarkable, and, and you at Capham are playing a massive part of that. That is fantastic. Yeah. I, I, do, I, don't, I don't want to diminish that work in any way, but frankly, are they cute? <laughs> yes, most definitely. They're these little... <laughs> You're looking down a microscope, there's a little thing peering up at you with its multiple legs. Jesus, and it, it's sort of, of like they look like they're waving almost. Yeah. Off, so sorry, we just had a cross cut from another studio there. Sorry, oh. sorry, sorry, Susie. And so, the, the yes, yeah, so you can see them moving around their little legs and everything. You can, yeah. And they sort of wander over, like they crawl up over little bits of moss and then all of a sudden you'll see them coming up over the top of a bit of moss and sort of peering up at you with their great big eyes and they're definitely very cute to work with. <laughs> oh, what a wonderful image to leave us with. I just thank yeah. you so much. I love that. There's the music in the background. Um, and this research will keep going. Maybe we get back in touch and I know I just really, I'm just a water bear fangirl, but maybe we'll actually come back next year and talk a little bit more detail about the research itself. Yeah, that would be great. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Susie, this morning. Thanks. It's been wonderful. Cheers. Bye. Associate Professor Susie Reichman from Capham at the University of Melbourne. Water bears, what do you think, guys? I am a water bear fan. I, I, I like Moss Piglet. I'm going to go with that. Ooh, controversy. Bron? I'm going with water bears. I mean, there's a song. <laughs> there's a song. There's a song. <laughs> Let's get Mal to do a Moss Piglet song. Okay. <laughs> do you think we go? Actually, actually, let's let's talk to Mel in 2021. See if he wants to write one about moss piglets, and he can flip between the two. I love it. Hey, uh, thank you so much to Susie Reichman for joining us this morning, and um, to no, we didn't. And, and Jan Gilbert for giving the information this morning off air. Uh, next week, Brian. Yeah, next week we're going to be playing an um, interview that uh, we did with Tim Ely back in 2009 and Neil Blake will be in as well. And just another thing to mention, I've just put a link to the Radio Marinara Facebook page to the Nature article that you mentioned, Dr Beach, um, written by Jane Lubchenco and Wayne Souza, who are both you know, in their own right world-leading ecologists as well. So it's their tribute to Wonderful. Joe Connell in, the nature, in nature. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.